Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Jerusalem Unplugged is reaching its 100th episode. Most likely it will be the last one, and so I would like you to make it your own episode. So get in touch and send me your questions about the podcast, about myself, my job as a podcaster, and more importantly, about Jerusalem. Get in touch using my email address, robbymaza at gmail.com, or my social media at robbyref or through the official page of Jerusalem Unplugged at Facebook or Instagram. Send me your questions and I'll be very happy to answer all of them. There will be a special guest hosting the episodes and I will be the guest. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I'm presenting to you the last episodes of a short series dedicated to the Nebi Musa Festival. Today, in an almost solo episode, with the intervention of Awadalabi, I will present to you the events that occurred in April 1920, also known as the Nebi Musa Riots. Before we delve into the facts that occurred in April 1920 in Jerusalem, the interpretation and the consequences of the Nebi Musa riots, I want to start with a brief summary of the context which led and in a sense encapsulated the development of the riots in April 1920. But I also want to spend some time discussing the question of definitions. What is violence? What is urban violence in the context of Jerusalem? Far too many times we hear people just making common assumptions that uh, there is obviously 
sort of a violent character, violent in nature, that defines these two groups of people, the Arabs and the Zionists. Actually, we should probably say that this is a common and typical comment made upon the Arabs. The reality is that violence is an option. It's a form of language. And in the particular case of the Nebi Musarayots, as I will argue later, it was chosen as a form of test where two groups, two emerging groups, decided to use violence and see to what level could be used and what would be the consequences if violence was necessary and therefore performed. But let me start with the context. So we know that in December 1917, British troops, in the context of World War I, led by General Allenby, entered Jerusalem and effectively ended Ottoman rule. Some may argue that this opened a new and crucial era in the history of Jerusalem and Palestine, and it did indeed. But we also have to stay away from the idea that the British brought, for instance, modernity and changed everything. Well, we know that changes occurred, changes were made, but also we know that the British, for instance, relied upon the Ottoman administrative system. So continuities were certainly matched by changes and vice versa. The history of Jerusalem has traditionally been depicted as the quintessential history of conflict and strife, of ethnic and communal tensions and of incomparable national narratives and vision. And we certainly have tons of books and articles suggesting this kind of narratives. But we also know that in the last maybe a couple of decades, a lot more has been published, a lot more been recorded and discussed, showing that, well, it was not necessarily always the case. But let me go back to the point. The transition from Ottoman to British rule marked a dramatic and indeed radical change in the history of the city. Looking at the riots that took place in the city in April 1920, I would like to explore the emergence of what I would call structured urban violence in Jerusalem and the ways in which it superseded communal violence, which was more common and certainly unfolded and occurred many times in the history of Jerusalem under the Ottomans. In order to appreciate this change, we need to look at the broader picture, including the British issue of the Balfour Declaration, the arrival of Zionists in Palestine, which reshaped the urban fabric of Jerusalem. So, as I said earlier, I want to also discuss some definitions of communal and structural violence, just to give you a sense of how, I believe, violence changed in Jerusalem. So, communal and structured violence are not necessarily distinct categories, but define different ways of understanding violence and its use. And I want to advance this idea that violence during the Nebi Musa riots became in some way elaborated and was no longer spontaneous. So, Arab political leaders used the Nebi Musa celebrations as an ideal time to test the degree of Arab resentment and to test violence as a political tool. I'm not suggesting a radical break away from the communal nature of early episodes of violence that occurred in Jerusalem. 
the rioting was no longer however, the spontaneous reaction of a population fearful of losing their land or the rights or the privileges. This transformation is clear when comparing the Nibi Musa riots with earlier violent events, such as the intracommunal incidents between Christians in 1901 and the 1911 affair over the archaeological excavations close to the Arama Sharif, which Louis Fishman explained us uh, in a great episode at the very beginning of uh, Jerusalem Unplugged. Secondly, I would like to provide a general background on the British military administration and the politicization of the emerging nationalist movements in Palestine. And so I, I would like to say that the transition from communal violence to a more structured one was also the result of a combination of a variety of factors. The arrival of the British, as I said, the establishment of a Zionist commission, which was a sort of a parallel Zionist government in Palestine, and indeed the spread of Palestinian nationalism. And I also to mention, perhaps later, that I believe that changes in the urban landscape implemented by the British governor Ronald Storrs played, if not a major role, certainly a role, an important one, in renegotiating the urban space of Jerusalem and in the radicalization of local politics through policies of confessionalization, which basically means segregation according to religion, that eventually created the framework for the development of what I called earlier structure urban violence. In late Ottoman Jerusalem, violence was common. Let's bear this in mind. But not in an organized form. And I believe that the expression of violence was milder than in other areas of the Ottoman Empire. One point should be clarified in relation to the concept of violence, particularly to the Western mind. And without being too simplistic, violence strongly connotes behavior that, in some sense, is illegitimate or unacceptable. However, bear with me. Violence in Jerusalem, as in many other places, was not an arbitrary expression of uncontrollable anger, but it was rather used as a means of social political advancement. So, judgment on violent behavior is therefore irrelevant. The point is very simple it's easy to judge violence, but it's more complicated to understand it. So the whole point of this episode is try to understand violence, not to justify it. I also want to spend a couple of words about communalism, which is defined as the competition between groups within the same political system based on ethnic, linguistic, racial, or religious identities. And it is important to stress that although Jerusalem at the beginning of the 20th century was a city divided along religious lines, it was not a confessionalized city. If you remember the great episode with Michel Campos, we talked about the fact that urban space was not entirely divided in accordance with religion, and shared spaces were a common feature of late Ottoman Jerusalem. A variety of sources tell us that. Now, whereas the years between 1856 and 1860s were characterized by 
complete rift between Muslims and Christians following the various Ottoman reforms, Jerusalem actually proved to be a significant exception, uh, you know, compared to the rest of the Ottoman Empire, until the arrival of the British in 1917. In fact, no major disturbances were recorded. And when I talk about disturbances, I talk about uh, what organized or spontaneous uh, outbreak of violence. So I was saying, we don't have any records of these kind of uh, disturbances occurring in Jerusalem in the second part of the 19th century, with the exception of a 1911 Aram al-Sharif incident over the alleged Christian violation of a shrine following archaeological excavation. Really, the most common outbreaks of violence occurred mainly among Christians themselves over the control of the holy places. And one good example is, the, is an incident involving... Uh, Greek Orthodox and Franciscans on November 4, 1901. When following a quarrel between a number of monks, the two communities became fully involved. And two dozen people were killed, in fact, and many others were injured. Actually, perhaps this episode, uh, you know, should deserve a full podcast, and not much is known about it. But it certainly engulfed Jerusalem in days of uh, rioting between these two communities. So violent episodes involving individual members of different communities were indeed frequent in Jerusalem. But it seems that a number of factors prevented the outbreak of major communal violence, like we saw in Syria or in Lebanon at the same time, certainly in Damascus, for instance. Looking at the social-political configuration of Jerusalem, it is possible to say that the presence of a high-ranking Ottoman governor, who was answering directly to Istanbul, and indeed of foreigners and foreign consuls, but also a modernization process which was initiated by the Ottomans and marked the shift of Jerusalem from subjects to citizens, or at least this was the idea, and as well as a political organization of urban politics around a few notable families, all of this worked towards the prevention of communal violence and in a sense towards the partial integration of local communities. So overall, conflicts or potential clashes were partly mediated through the social-political structure of the city and partly controlled by the Ottoman establishment and the threat of foreign intervention. So I believe communal violence in Jerusalem was clearly far from being organized. But at the same time, it was not exclusively the outcome of irrational behavior. It was more of a tipping point of strained relations between communities. So let me move now to structure violence, because this is the word, the kind of a, a definition that I want to bring in into this podcast. And I would define structure violence as the performance of violence following a script and rituals within a recognized arena, space. And I would suggest it represents the bridge between communalism and fully organized violence, like, you know, you have uh, paramilitary organizations and, of course, uh, commanders who are organizing violence. And I think structured violence can sit in between. So structured violence, as developed in Jerusalem, displayed political aims propagated by the rhetoric of a political empowerment and led by self-appointed leaders, whose purpose was to set the stage for a large, organized political struggle. As it happened, again, I don't want to read history backwards, but you know we can see that then happening 
after 1920. And as I said earlier, the historical shift that occurred after the arrival of the British in 1917 led to coordinated efforts by both Zionists and Arabs to destroy one or more parties involved in the disputes. And all of the various evidence suggests that the organization of group mobilization in violent events became very visible in the spring of 1920. There were plenty of signs that violence was an option that it might have become a reality. Again, I want to make the point, it was a choice. It didn't have to be followed. It didn't have to be that way. So I don't want to suggest any full prearranged set of measures to adopt at a certain time, in a certain place. The shift from communalism to structural violence occurred at the exact moment when inflicting damage on an enemy became in some way calculated. But let me talk about now the British in Jerusalem. With Allenby's entrance into the city, military rule was officially established. Now, I'm not going here into all of the details of how the British captured Jerusalem, which is a fascinating historical uh, episode. Anyway, the first governor of Jerusalem, General Bill Borton, set up the administration following the principle of what is known as the status quo antebellum. In other words, he was not allowed to change anything other than providing services to the local populations. And, uh, you know, we should remember that Jerusalem was still an Ottoman city under British occupation. The governorship of Borton lasted only a few weeks, and Ronan Storrs, who was the former Oriental Secretary in Cairo, was appointed in early 1919 as the new governor of Jerusalem. Now, although specific plans were yet to be drawn uh, up by the military administration and the foreign office in London, this appointment, I believe, proved to be crucial in the social, political, religious, economic, urban, and architectural development of the city. I will say a few things later, and I just want to mention briefly here that the British, mainly through Ronan's tours, also contributed to the creation of the conditions that allowed violence to become a common political tool. So I want to start adding the fact that it was not just about the Arabs and the Zionists, but also the British, in a sense, creating the conditions that made violence an option, a political option. Now, going back to stores, the first task of the governor and of the military administration was essentially to cope with a general lack of food, medicine, and fuel. So, in other words, they had to cut off to the needs of the army and, most importantly, to those of the civilian population. So slowly, commerce, trade, bureaucracy, schools, and legal courts were all re-established or reopened. The military was not supposed to deal with political issues, but in the end, despite decisions made in London, the military had to deal with local politics, as it was charged with enforcing the status quo, so this idea of not changing anything. But effectively, the British already did. They did because in London, they issued the Balfour Declaration, promising uh, the Jews a land in Palestine. The British already made changes because they allowed a Zionist commission, which represented the Zionist organization, to travel to Palestine, and also allowed the formation of uh, Christian Muslim associations 
So it's a sort of a counterpart, but not of the same nature and certainly not of the same strength. So what was supposed to be temporary eventually lasted for several years before the military administration was transformed into a civilian administration. But the future of Jerusalem in this period and of Palestine was yet to be fully decided. To provide a little bit more context, I want to say that the British relied in local matters on local notables, effectively perpetuating the same politics of notables implemented by the Ottomans. Early in 1918, Roland Storrs appointed the most prominent member of the Husseini family, Musa Kazim, mayor of Jerusalem. He was a political activist who, once in charge of a mayoral office, was initially tactful in his opposition to the British and Zionism. However, as we shall see later, he was dismissed after he played a major role in the Nebi Musa riots. The leaders of local notable families were not only able to maintain their power once the British arrived, they increased it while becoming the leaders of the anti-Zionist movement that in this particular period took the form of the already mentioned Christian Muslim associations. The arrival of the British, the establishment of the Zionist Commission, the spread of Palestinian nationalism and the politicization of local elites were all signs that a paradigm shift was ready to take place. One that I say and argue included violence as a political tool available to the parties involved, but not necessarily one to be used. However, the British and the introduction of organized violence as a possibility redefined urban space. So Jerusalem, and we'll see that in a minute, was turned from a space for the development of citizenship into a sacred place. So what I want to do now is to look at the renegotiation of urban space of Jerusalem, in other words, to the urban plans that were implemented by the British, which, in my view, then led to the radicalization of local politics and the introduction of structured violence, which occurred mainly through the British governor, Ronald Storrs, and also the civic advisor, Charles Asby. Perhaps we can see the importance of urban planning even today, and we see when the Israelis are essentially implementing policies, uh, taking over the land and the properties of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, or uh, approving plans that are changing the structure of East Jerusalem, we see how that translates into action, most likely uh, in violence or resistance, but that tells us about the fact that urban planning cannot be left alone and just uh, uh, seen through the eyes of uh, services or beautification or uh, sort of restructuring of the city, but urban planning has political repercussions and some of these political repercussions translate into also the use of violence, of resistance in the current uh, era. So Ronald Storrs and Ashby employed urban planning in an effort to control the newly acquired territory, the city of Jerusalem, but I would also say to satisfy some personal desires. Ronald Storrs 
who was trained in classical studies at Pembroke College in Cambridge, where you can find all of his papers, for instance, also studied languages and was quite fluent in Arabic, even though many criticized his accent and often uh, Arab leaders preferred him to speak in English. And all of his knowledge used to be appointed to the Egyptian civil service and then to become Oriental Secretary to the British agency in Cairo. Stoll was full of himself, we can see that from the material he left, even his memoirs, and he was imbued with never-ending self-esteem. Stoll's while appointed civil governor of Jerusalem in 1920 claimed to rule Jerusalem like his predecessor, Pontius Pilate. He essentially imagined himself as an all-powerful governor in charge of every aspect of urban development, life and governance of Jerusalem. Stores believed that his tastes and ideas about urban space would have a benevolent impact on Jerusalemites. He unequivocally intertwined imperial interests with his personal views in his style of government. Aesthetics, a very high civic and religious sense, and a feeling that the communities of the city should be involved all led stores toward the creation of what now we call the pro-Jerusalem society which was established in 1918. The society was composed of the mayor of Jerusalem, the consular corps, the heads of the Christian denominations, and other leading members of the British, Arab, and Jewish communities. And according to its statute, the main purpose of the pro-Jerusalem society was the preservation and advancement of the interest of Jerusalem, the provision and maintenance of parks, gardens, and open spaces, and the establishment of libraries, museums, music centers and theaters with an emphasis on preserving religious antiquities. The societies promoted the communitarian notion that Jerusalem was a city of free faiths rather than a space for equal citizenship. And the very logo of a society was a religious symbol representing the cross, the star of David and the crescent moon. There's a lot to be said about th this idea. On one hand, it sounds very positive and uh, very important in preserving the city. But uh, once we delve into the various layers of a society, we understand that actually this was a British tool meant to sort of uh, create uh, a British Jerusalem and to remove the local voices from the decisions making in relation to the urban planning of a city. The members of a society gather on a regular basis between eight, 1918 to uh, 1924. However, it is clear that Storrs and Ashby played the leading role. Some of the most dramatic reforms implemented by the British under the ages of Storrs were the renaming of streets. And you can go back to the episode with uh, Yair Wallach where he talks extensively about uh, the renaming of the streets and the confessionalization of the quarters in the old city. Again, you can go back to the episode with uh, Matthew uh, Teller where he talks about the question of the quarters of Jerusalem. For instance, Yair Wallach noted that two-thirds of the names for the new city commemorated prophets, saints, scholars, and kings. A third of the names were biblical, and the rest included names of the crusader kings, Christian emperors, some Muslim sultans, and even one Arab medieval scholar. Only one woman was commemorated, the crusader queen Melisanda. The names chosen made the streets of New Jerusalem look ancient, 
Jerusalemites were reminded on every corner that they were walking the biblical city of the prophets, Jesus and Paul. Names were not linked to British history because Tors chose to link street names to the history of Jerusalem, perhaps in an attempt to achieve some sort of a sectarian harmony. The historical pathos was a new feature in Jerusalem and contrasted with the late Ottoman geographical division of the city. Jerusalemites, if you remember again the episode with uh, Michel Campos, called streets by various names that emphasize local features, building or local residence. So Stores was radically changing this tradition and in a manner of speaking was dressing Jerusalem in biblical clothes. Not surprisingly, Ronald Stores projected his own British and Victorian ideals in order to preserve the into inverted commas, celestial character of a city. He prohibited commercial advertisement. Close to the old city and brothels were forbidden within the walls. The sale and consumption of alcohol was regulated. So religion was made a marker of national identity and was artificially announced and became the principle the British used to divide the old city and to issue identity cards and passports. Whereas the urban space under the Ottomans was divided according to a mixed-class-religion character, under the British, the city became largely divided according to religious identities. The segregation model that developed upon the arrival of the British, I believe, reduced essentially social interaction and contributed to creating the idea of an almost inevitable conflict between communities. Now, the street names chosen were clearly linked with the history of Jerusalem, but none of them really symbolized the unity of the city. On the contrary, they suggested a clear religious cleavage and failed to promote a sense of unity based on common citizenship, something that actually the Ottomans had, and to an extent, uh, been able to promote in the last decade of their rule. The idea of uh, being Ottoman citizens and you know, to, to have a shared common identity Late Ottoman urban planning, for instance, was driven by discourses of modernity through public works, such as uh, transportation, electric lighting, and civil buildings. Uh, for instance, the clock tower that nowadays you can look for, but you will never find because it was demolished by the British. So the clock tower dominated sort of the skyline of Jerusalem for almost two decades. But then again, stores decided to demolish it because it was not in line with the ancient walls. The British, through the agency of Ronald Storrs, set in motion a social and spatial process that aimed at the division and homogenization of the old city of Jerusalem, but also the city outside the walls. And this was done mostly according to religion. So what I believe is that the British defined the city and came to uh, sort of create this long-lasting legacy of confessionalizing and segregating the city according to religion. Now, the British, whether aware or not, I believe contributed to the development of exclusive and asyncretic religious identity, which essentially didn't make possible people to meet and mix their ideas and identities, which made religion a key feature of Palestinian nationalism and also favors Zionism as an example of full secular nationalism. So, uh, contraposing the two, one religious and one secular. 
our first guest of the podcast, Salim Tamari, noted that this proved to be a retrogression from the Ottoman system. While religion was obviously defining the identity of a people, but we also saw a strong process of modernization, which included secularization of society. And what we see here in Jerusalem with the British is exactly the opposite. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Social interaction between community was very common and not at all an empty cohabitation. It was based more on neighborhood coexistence, as proved, for instance, by the diaries and memoirs of local residents. And, you know, we heard these names before mentioned by, again, Salim Tamari, Sam Nassar, Abigail Jacobson, Michel Campos, individuals like Wasif Joaria, Isman Turjman, but also a Jewish resident, uh, Gat Frumkin, and also other local but Western residents. So, Joria noted, for instance, in his memoir, quote, during the Ottoman rule, we, the sons of Jerusalem, of our different denominations, lived like a family, with no difference between a Muslim and a Christian. Now, this was written after the British took over, and there's some sense of nostalgia, obviously. But we also can take, uh, with a pinch of salt, all of this, and realize that uh, there was a sense of coexistence. British policies, as mentioned earlier, like confessionalization of the old city, which eventually ended with a division of the old city into the four communities, you know, four quarters, along with the street naming, the demolition of the Ottoman clock tower, the regulation of buildings, color and shape of the stones, the regulation of businesses inside, outside the city, and the regulation of public transportation. I believe catalyzed the ship from communalism, characterized by shared space, 
to nationalism based on ethnic and religious identity, characterized by the absence of shared space. So we move from an area and time when Jerusalem had plenty of shared spaces, places where people met, talked, and also conflicted with each other, into a city that saw the emergence of imaginary and obviously artificial, invisible boundaries that brought communities to separate from each other. However, it would not be fair to attribute to the British alone the structural changes that occurred in the city. Nationalism as an ideology, which was already fostered by the Ottomans, played a major role than indeed the war and in British support for Zionism through the Balfour Declaration. All of these elements proved to be a strong impetus to nationalist mobilization. And so, picking up from, again, Salim Tamari, quote, all of a sudden a Jew, including any local Jew, and probably we should say more importantly, local Jews, in an Arab-Palestinian eyes, became the European, the intruder, from a different ethnic community, which was contesting ownership of the land in Jerusalem and in Palestine. The shift was indeed gradual, cumulative through the 1920s. However, I would argue that the Nebi Musa riots, which I'm going to discuss in a minute, were the first major sign of a changing pattern that introduced violence, not as a uh, sort of a communal dispute, but as a political tool. And the Nebi Musa riots of 1920, to me, were the first test of this national struggle. In my view, the Nebi Musa riots have not attracted much academic attention. In fact, we, we can safely say that among the few people talking about it with uh, some degree of, uh, you know, knowledge about the events, the interpretation, it's uh, myself. I don't like to put myself on this front, but uh, that's part of my work, and certainly Awad Alabi and a few other scholars that obviously mentioned the riots. I believe that many historians have regarded these events as being of secondary importance, particularly in relation to uh, the events that occurred nearly a decade later in 1929, or certainly looking at the Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939. But I also believe that uh, the lack of attention is due to the very fact that the British defined what happened in Jerusalem in 1920 as riots, and essentially they attached a political judgment so often authorities label as riots events that are considered detrimental to public order and driven by supposedly irrational mobs. So this idea of uh, irrational behavior made uh, the riots like less relevant. But I believe there's more to say about them. Now, we, we know that riots are generally associated with the uh, idea of spontaneous eruption of violence, but this is not always the case. In often riots, they may look like spontaneous, but actually are either meticulously planned uh, or partially planned, but certainly collectively executed. And so what we see is also masses that might not be fully aware of what's going on, but they, they understand that there's a degree of organization. And I believe that the Nebi Musa riots are not necessarily full riots, but not necessarily, as I said earlier, like fully organized uh, uh, sort of uh, clashes where you have two group of people that meet with a clear goal and exactly know what to do and plans. So they sit in the middle. 
Let's talk about the festival. Now, the festival has been discussed with plenty of details by Awad in the previous episode. So I'm just going to mention here a couple of things uh, that I believe are important. So uh, the, the, the celebrations by this point in time and the power to create a bond between people from various parts of Palestine who gather in a single place for the festival. And indeed, in 1920, the leaders of the Arab political parties and associations exploited the excitement and enthusiasm aroused by the festival to make sure that their voices were heard by both the Zionists and the British. And I think this is important because obviously, uh, you know, this is the time when the Balfour Declaration became public and it was clear that uh, the Zionists were going to stay or at least they would see their uh, numbers growing. Now, if we look at the other side, I believe that the Zionists, particularly those led by the revisionist uh, uh, Zionist Vladimir Jabotinsky, who proposed a more aggressive approach towards local Arabs, worked to heat up the atmosphere, which was already far from idyllic. And in a sense, they created the condition to set the stage for a potential conflict. And again, my, my idea is that the Jabotinsky and his associates were not really clear we were not really looking for a full confrontation, but they were kind of testing themselves, so their strength and the strength of the other side, the Arabs. So to show how a degree of structural violence was introduced and how the paradigm shift that I mentioned earlier took place, let me focus on the events that occurred at the beginning of April 1920. So on April 2nd, it was a Friday, the first ceremony of the Navy Musa Festival passed without incident, and it seems that the small police force dealing with the procession was rather successful. Sunday, April 4th, which was the day of the main pilgrimage from the shrine of the prophet Moses near Jericho to Jerusalem, things took a different turn. Ordinarily, the route followed by pilgrims upon their arrival in Jerusalem included a walk along Jaffa Road. They then entered the old city through Damascus Gate and from there reached the Aram al-Sharif. Now, on this day, the procession stopped outside the old city on Jaffa Road, just opposite Jaffa Gate. So instead of Damascus Gate, they chose the more common, popular, and I would say secular, in a sense, uh, gate. The gate that allowed all people of different religious, ethnicity, groups, and languages to enter the city without any clear direction where they're going. It's, you know, uh, that's how it's been interpreted. And I believe this is, a, this is a very good point. So notable and religious leaders, including a very heated group coming from Hebron, carrying the Hebron banner, then started to deliver inflammatory political speeches, which were contrary to the usual protocol. And as I said, the choice of Jaffa Gate was not accidental. This is also about modernity. This is about, uh, you know, a gathering place. Now, at this point, the famous uh, Palestinian uh, nationalist and historian, Aref Al-Aref, who was by then the editor of a newspaper, Al-Suriya Al-Janubiya, southern Syria, uh, published already since 1919, you know, made a big statement saying, if we do not use force against the Jews, we will never be rid of them. And, you know, the crowd began to chant and to support these kind of speeches. Um, Khalil Baidas, who was also a very important Palestinian historian, concluded this speech by saying, like, 
My voice is weakening with emotion, but my national heart will never weaken. And, you know, this was the tone of the speeches given by all of these political leaders. Musa Kazim al-Husayni, who was the mayor of Jerusalem, also spoke. And eventually, they began also to show pictures of Faisal. Uh, Faisal, at that time, uh, the son of Sharif al-Husayni from what nowadays we would call Saudi Arabia, moved to try to, you know, become the ruler of Syria. Uh, and eventually, at that time, was uh, kicked out by the French. So anyway, he represented this I idea of a nationalist leader and uh, sort of a leader of the Arabs. And so pictures were shown, displayed, and he was also acclaimed king of Syria and Palestine. And by then, a very young Al-Ajamin, uh, and I want to refer you to uh, the episode with Kessler about 1936, cried out, Oh, Arabs, this is your king. Now, this rhetoric um, was really meant to polarize the situation. And I believe that also pushed people to consider violence as a potential avenue. What happened is that we can see the widening of the political and social space between the Arabs and the Zionists, and violence was inserted in this gap. Again, it was a possibility. It was not a necessity. It didn't have to happen. So back to the procession, uh, it went through Jaffa Gate, and then the riot began between what back then was the Christakis Pharmacy and the Credit Lyonnais. There's plenty of sources talking about what happened, but it's, it's not clear what was the trigger. And uh, to be honest, the trigger is irrelevant. It, I believe that this was going to happen anyway. You know, some said that some Zionists were listening to the speeches and uh, some spat on some Arab flags or vice versa. So the, the point is that something triggered the beginning. But the parties were ready. The forces of Vladimir Jabotinsky were in the vicinity and they were just waiting for this trigger uh, to be pulled so that a riot would erupt, so that violence could be used. Now, there are some testimonies saying that a Jew pushed an Arab, as I said earlier, and he tried to spit on the banner. And, uh, you know, others say there were, it was the opposite, so the provocation came from the Arabs. But the bottom line is that, again, the trigger is not relevant. What happened then immediately is that shops inside the old city were looted uh, after they had been the targets of volume stones and spectators close to the new Grand Hotel were beaten with stones. Now, obviously, this is a moment of chaos and it, everything is unclear. There are people that are motivated, uh, you know, politically motivated. Others are just in the middle. And as we know from many uh, anthropological and sociological experiments, sometimes people are you know, become part of this mass and they just behave following somebody else's behavior. So there was no real motivation for some people in the crowd to loot and destroy properties. Even when it became clear that some of these properties were targeted because they belong to the different groups or Arabs or Jews. Now, the crowd then moved down towards the center of the old city where some Jewish shops, again, now we can see there is a different kind of uh, motivations uh, and more political. So some of the Jewish shops were looted and several Jews were also assaulted. 
So what we have is a principle of targeting. You know, the beginning there's a lot of chaos, confusion, and then as the riots is moving uh, on, we see a clear uh, targeting against individuals, Arabs and Jews. Some of the Jews involved, we know through a number of sources, carried weapons, and some shots were fired. Now, what we know is that the police presence was minimal. The incident started at, at 10 a.m., and it was practically over by noon. Eventually, the night was quiet, and more police was deployed by Rona stores, who became the target of many attacks. Um, it's unclear why it didn't send more police in the first place, probably because the day, you know, a couple of days earlier, everything was fine. But the bottom line is that, obviously, the lack of a police presence also helped the riots to unfold. The uh, pilgrims from Ebron, who were confined for the night in the police barracks, were then taken to the Arama Sharif and from there escorted to St. Stephen's Gates on their way to Nebi Musa. So they were basically sent back. Disorders of weather broke out again early in the morning and lasted until 3 p.m. So again, Monday morning, saw the city ransacked and uh, devastated by uh, the riots, by the confrontations. And eventually at 3 p.m. on Monday, martial law was declared, as we have a number of violent assaults and looting reported. Now we move to the following day again, looting and violence continued, but on a smaller scale, even because more police was deployed. We also have a, a case of rape that was reported, in fact, probably two cases of rape against Jewish girl. Um, later on, investigations and the uh, responsible were found, and the police shot uh, into an Arab mob to reach the house where the rape allegedly occurred. Now, martial law was declared, as I said, looting was still carried out, and in fact, it seems the police were not able to cope with the intricacies of the streets of the old city, which was defined as a labyrinth. Eventually, by Friday, April 9, the situation had slowly been brought under control, and only occasional incidents were still being reported. The reported casualties amounted to 251, of whom nine Jews and 22 Arabs were critically wounded. Five Jews and four Muslims had been killed. 211 Jews were reported wounded, as opposed to 21 Muslims and three Christians. Seven British soldiers were also injured. However, it appears that the police were never the target of the attackers, whether Arabs or Jews. Stores seems to have ignored early warnings of impending troubles, which were issued in a number of reports from months in advance. Zionists accused the local police force of being inadequate and mainly Arab in character. On Friday, the day that, you know, so the beginning of a celebration and nothing happened, the ceremony, as I said, passed without incident. And I believe this led stores to think that, uh, or at least to claim later, that this more police force deployed was more than enough to cope with a main procession. Clearly, an error in judgment, but also an, a, an error in understanding the, the sort of the climate uh, and, and the uh, relations between the two groups. I think he didn't see that coming. He didn't understand that this was going to happen. Despite the signs were out there uh, in the sun and clearly 
visible to many. Now, after the first day of riots, Tours decided to withdraw the main bulk of the troops from the old city in order to proceed with business as usual. Again, Stores believed that showing normality was restored and could be restored quickly. This could prevent the outbreak of further violence. And again, another misjudgment of the situation. And the military apparatus allowed the demonstration to take place and it adopted a sort of wait-and-see policy. Only when incidents became evident and events unstoppable, did the military intervene to stop the violence. So there's no room for prevention of, of this violence. The riots had a visible impact on Jerusalem. The stage was now set for an open, tripartite political battle among British, Arabs, and Zionists. Yet, and I've repeated this several times throughout the podcast, this does not mean the escalation in the degree of hostility between these actors was inevitable. And I want to underline and stress this word, inevitable. Nothing was set in stone. The British saw the riots as an expression of political and racial tensions and did not consider these events an organized attempt to introduce violence as a political language in Jerusalem and Palestine at large. However, in my view, and in a minute we're going to hear the views of uh, uh, Awad, Alabi, communal clashes were now superseded by structured violence, or at least by the threat of it. As performer of violence, both sides, Arabs and Zionists, realized that in this new context, tactical preemption was vital, yet not to be deployed immediately because of the presence of the British, and in the case of the Zionists, because also their demographic disadvantage. So the riots were a bitter clash. They were politically motivated, but they were not yet evidence of an open conflict. So, in other words, April 1920 shows that local values and alliances were renegotiated, but not radicalized. And the confessionalization of space implemented by the British in Jerusalem, but at large in Palestine, played an important part in fostering the emergence of organized violence. And in Jerusalem, we see a shift from a space for development of citizenship. Now the city had been transformed into a sacred space. But let's hear from Awad's his views about the Nabi Musa riots. Sure, and I can say, Roberto, your uh, study on that was very helpful and uh, I respect it a great deal. Um, <clears throat> the festival riots in uh, uh, April 1920, I see as more um, spontaneous it, and not organized. It was already a climate of tension. There were demonstrations in March uh, of that year uh, against the Belfort Declaration, um, uh, there was still uncertainty of what would happen to Palestine as a country. It was still unresolved if it would be a mandate uh, or remain under British colonial rule or maybe potentially gain independence and join with Syria under Prince Faisal. <clears throat> and so there was growing tension and there was already, as you, I believe I remember correctly, you note an era of sectarianism and that now the uh, local Arab Jew was uh, not just an, uh, a member of your extended 
neighborhood, say in Jerusalem or uh, another city, uh, but that they were now part of the Zionist project. They were a political uh, opponent. And, and so in this atmosphere of rising tensions and of sectarianism, um, the, the congregation of so many people in the city of Jerusalem with, uh, I wouldn't say uh, rousing uh, uh, speeches filled with uh, animosity, but heightened political speeches that heightened and amplified the political tensions led to any major, uh, any minor um, event leading to the uh, outbreak of violence. And we see this best in that incredible video, I'm sorry, video, film uh, that is captured on the roof of uh, one of the buildings overlooking the pilgrims as they are entering the city. This is the Hebron pilgrims, correct? And um, on the Sunday of the festival, and they are entering the city, and it's still a very typical scene of what has always been described. Um, one pilgrim is on the shoulders of his uh, fellow villager, and they're, he's doing a mock sword fight. Others are dancing, but then suddenly, immediately, the crowd uh, sallies behind them, and uh, then they rush back. And so there is less uh, uh, an appearance that there is an orchestrated, maneuvered uh, attempt to mobilize people, uh, the pilgrims, into a mob to attack uh, Jewish people, the British, or Jewish targets, but it's, it, it uh, emerges spontaneously in this atmosphere of tension of where the most minor incident uh, ignites this spark. Generally, I would say what's most interesting to me about the festival, and we could disagree of the immediate causes, is that the British discoursing of the festival after the riots, that they, they either speak about it, the British colonial officials or British press or British visitors to Palestine speak about it as confirming that there are inherent racial uh, conflicts between, quote-unquote, the Jew and the, quote-unquote, the Arab. And the Jew is always politically aggressive, um, um, is misinterpreting the moderate uh, understanding of the Balfour Declaration, that it could serve all people properly. They're taking it at its most extreme to create uh, a Palestine as Jewish, as English, as English. And while the Arab is always inherently, um, uh, could be manipulated, gullible, and so uh, he believes that uh, all these extreme rumors, if these two racial uh, uh, figures can... Uh, be managed better, the British then can uh, can promote communal harmony, and that's their continued justification for remaining in the in the country. Let me reach some conclusion. Whether we interpret the events of 1920 as structured violence or unorganized violence, I think the Nebi Musa riots 
that broke out epitomized a major change in urban and national politics and eventually were instrumental to the introduction of organized violence later on as a means of reaching political goals. And certainly that's more appreciated and appreciable in 1929. Relationship between Zionists and Arabs were not inherently violent. On the contrary, there's plenty of room for cooperation and dialogue. In fact, violence was still an option rather than the normality. With the creation of political organization on both sides, the Zionists with the Zionist Commission, then later to become the Jewish Agency, and the formation of uh, Muslim Christian associations and later uh, various Arab societies, in the absence of political institutions, violence became a tool for political communication. But as I said, a tool, and not one that should have been used lightly. I, I think it was uh, with Ilal Cohen that we talked about the fact that we s- focus so much on the on violence and the outbreak of violence in 1920, 21, 29, 36, that we, we, we stop thinking about the long gaps in between and how people coped with the aftermath of violence and also try to avoid the reproduction of those events. Did the Nebi Mozarayos introduce violence as a means to an end, or rather as an end in itself? The latter would be certainly a frightening conclusion. So I believe that violence in a more sophisticated, organized way was the outcome of a variety of factors. The British creation of a fertile framework. Certainly the Balfour Declaration played a major role here. And a choice, certainly not well pondered in the long term by the Zionist and the Arab organization, to use violence. Some may say that, well, that was the only uh, available option. But again, it's an option, right? So it means that there are others available. But with this episode, I also wanted to highlight how urban policies implemented by the British contributed to a shift in local urban alliances and in the relationship between communal identities and space. In the late Ottoman era, relations between communities were marked by a degree of coexistence that included shared religious and civic spaces. And as I'm recording this episode around the time of the so-called Jerusalem Day, you can see that these religious and civic spaces are gone as shared spaces, but they are appropriated by one group or the other. And the Nebi Musariots marked the end of the state of affairs, or at least you know, that state of affairs began to change, and eventually a new chapter in the history of Jerusalem of Palestine was opened. However, for those who think and depict the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as something that goes back to time immemorial and regard violence as something naturally implanted in both communities, just look at the Nebi Mozarayots and you can see that the exact opposite is true. Collective organized violence was relatively unknown and little experimented within Jerusalem and Palestine. Relationship between communities were not always idyllic, were not continuously strained, and it is only with the introduction of political discourses over land control, sort of a colonialism essentially, that relations between communities gradually in time and radically in nature changed. In the riots, 
were a first step in this direction. I hope you enjoyed this three-part series dedicated to Benevi Mifusa Festival, and I want to thank Awad Alabi for recording multiple episodes dedicated to this specific uh, uh, issue. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.